Welcome to a healthy bite. You're one nibble closer to a more satisfying way of life, a healthier you, and bite-sized bits of healthy motivation. Now let's dig in on the dish with Rebecca Huff. Today we are talking about a subject that affects a lot of people, and that is Lyme disease. And we have Assistant Professor of Biology, Dr. Sean Beckman, back on the show with us. And if you remember, he spoke with us in a previous episode about the coronavirus. And today, Dr. Beckman is going to share some insights about Lyme disease. Dr. Beckman, can you tell me a little bit about yourself and what you do? Sure. Uh, So I'm a biologist down here at Stetson University in Deland, Florida. Um, My... Obviously, my main focus down here is teaching, but my research focuses on uh, tick-borne pathogens. So Mm -hmm. there are these various different bacteria or viruses that are transmitted by ticks to people. We know about things like Lyme disease, for example. Uh, And my main interest is in where do these come from? What are the organisms that carry these uh, different pathogens? That ultimately the tick gets them from, and then the tick can transmit them on from there. Okay. Well, we had you on before talking about the coronavirus, and you mentioned you know what you do at your work, and I thought, oh wow, I know a lot of um, people who are going to want to ask you questions about tick-borne diseases, and boy was I right. So in my group, Hope Lively, I ask, you know, who who has a question for Dr. Beckman? And I was overwhelmed with all the questions they had for you. So I'm just going to start at the top, and we'll try to see how many questions we can get through. Um, Sounds good. So the first question people want to know is, where do people get Lyme disease and Rocky Mountain spotted fever? Okay, so we've got uh, kind of two different sides of the same coin here. Uh, Both Lyme disease and Rocky Mountain spotted fever are bacterial diseases. Uh, They're both caused by bacterial pathogens and they're both spread by ticks. But we get different ticks that spread each of these. So Lyme disease, which is what my research primarily focuses on, is caused by the bacteria Borrelia burgdorferi which is a bacteria that is transmitted in the eastern United States by the black-legged tick. And then out west, there's a related tick on the other side of the Rockies that can transmit it. Um, But that bacteria gets basically picked up by the tick from a rodent that it feeds on that carries that particular bacteria. So not all rodents have disease and the rodents can't transmit the disease to people. It has to be transmitted by a tick. The tick will feed on one of these rodents, we call it a reservoir, um, pick it up and then the tick carries that bacteria throughout its life. And so whatever it bites in the future, it can potentially transmit it to. It can transmit it to another rodent and make another reservoir. It can transmit it to a dog. It could transmit it to a deer or it could transmit it to a person potentially. And that's where people get it from, is from a tick that's previously gotten infected by it. They pick it up when that tick then bites them. In the case of Lyme, that's the, for the most part in the United States, we talk about the black-legged tick that can do that. In the case of Rocky Mountain spotted fever, that's transmitted by a group of ticks called the dog ticks. Uh, So you have the American dog tick and the brown dog tick and then the Rocky Mountain tick also 
are all capable of transmitting that. And that belongs to a different group of bacteria called the rickettsias. Uh, and so rickettsia, rickettsii, because uh, why not have a crazy name, uh, is uh, that bacteria. And that's transmitted by, like I said, a totally different group of ticks. Wow. Okay. So the tick transmits it to a rodent. Now, if the a rodent, another tick bites that rodent, it, it can get the bacteria from that rodent? Right. So ultimately, uh, to talk a little bit about, I guess, the, the kind of cycle, we call this the, the enzootic cycle, the cycle within animals. Uh, and so you imagine a situation where you've got a rodent that carries this bacteria. And by and large, the rodent is not affected by it. They are kind of the incubator for it, which is why we call them the reservoir. Mm -hmm. If a tick bites that rodent, the tick then picks up that bacteria. It, the tick's not affected by it. The tick carries it. It gets into the gut of the tick. And then ultimately, it moves from the gut of the tick into the salivary glands of the tick. Ticks only feed a couple of times in their life. Once during their first life stage, their uh, larval, uh, nymph stage, once during their second life stage, their larval life stage, and once during their adult stage. So if a tick nymph bites an infected rodent, yeah, it picks up that bacteria. Then when it goes to feed again as a larva, if it feeds on another rodent, it's going to create another reservoir. It's going to create another rodent that now has that bacteria. If it instead bites, say, a dog, it could transmit it to a dog. If it bites a person, it could transmit it to a person. And so there's really the first two life stages, it could pick up the bacteria in both of those life stages. It could transmit it in any life stage later where it's after it's become infected. So let's say a tick feeds three times in its life, and the first time it picks up the bacteria, now it's got two opportunities to spread it. If a tick picks it up in its second life stage, it's only got one opportunity to spread it. And if it picks it up in its third life stage, yeah, it may be infected, but it's never going to spread it to anything else. I see. So can a dog be a reservoir for the tick? Dogs and, um, dogs and deer and humans, for that matter, are what we call dead-end hosts. So what that means is we can get infected by the bacteria, but it can't be transmitted from us to a tick to go to something else. Our biology doesn't work really well with it from a transmission perspective. Unfortunately for us, we are the organisms that can become affected by that pathogen. So whereas the rodents will get the bacteria and they live happy, normal lives as far as we know, and, and every research study that's looked at this uh, and experiment that has looked at this in rodents, when they get Lyme or the bacteria that causes Lyme, they maybe get a little inflammation for a little while and then it goes away and they live normally with the bacteria. The bacteria evade their immune system and just live normally in there. But when it gets into a dog or a deer or a human, it doesn't do that. Our immune systems will initially or eventually recognize it and we become symptomatic and we get an illness as a result of it. Mm -hmm. And I want to talk more about that later, but um, can you be infected by these ticks anywhere or just in these particular areas geographically? It's a great question, and it's a question that leads to a lot of confusion because particularly, and, and I, I'll focus on Lyme because that is, that is my area of expertise. I know about the others, but that's my primary area. When we think of Lyme, 
we think of one, if not two places in the US. We think of the Northeastern United States, your, your middle Atlantic and Northeastern states. I, a Lyme disease is named after a Lyme, Connecticut, where it was first found, and that's where we find a lot of it. We also get a big focus of Lyme in the upper Midwestern US, particularly Wisconsin and Minnesota. But Lyme is found in all 50 states. It has been diagnosed in all 50 states, including Hawaii and Alaska. Now, does that mean there's lots of Lyme disease in Alaska? Probably not, and there's probably not in Hawaii either. Those are probably people that went somewhere else, acquired it, and then went home and got diagnosed with it at home. But within the contiguous United States, within the 48 states uh, within the United States proper, Lyme has been identified in all of them and is identified in all of them on a regular basis, even if it's at a low incidence. So you don't have to be bitten by a tick in New York, for example, to get Lyme disease. If you get bit by a tick in Florida and that tick is carrying Borrelia burgdorferi, it has a potential to pass it to you. And so even though there's areas in the U.S. where it's really prevalent, it is found throughout the entire U.S., Okay. Well, that makes sense. I've, I've had a lot of confusion. I think a lot of us think that it's only in certain areas. So I've never been to that area. So how could I have Lyme? Right. Okay. Right. That explains it. So I, I hear you saying that it's a, a bacteria. Yes. Okay. Because yes. there's also some confusion. Is it a virus? Is it a bacteria? Right. So Borrelia burgdorferi, the, the thing that causes Lyme disease, the bacteria that causes it, it is a spirochete bacteria. It's a spiral-shaped bac bacteria. That's where it gets its uh, name from. It belongs to the same group of bacteria like other nasty things like syphilis. Um, and it was identified in the early 1980s by a guy named Wilhelm Burgdorfer, which is where the Burgdorferi name comes from. Uh, and he was a doctor up in... New England in the Connecticut area. Uh, we've known since the early 1980s that it's caused by this bacteria. He was the first one to isolate it. The thing about Lyme uh, is while it's caused by a bacteria, the symptoms it causes are very similar to a number of other things. You, you can get lethargy, you can get muscle soreness, you can get joint pain, you can get a fever, and you can get rashes. And for what most people know about Lyme, they know of this characteristic bullseye rash around the site of the bite, something we call erythema migrans, which literally translates to migrating redness, the redness that moves out from around that location where the bite occurs. But the symptoms that it causes are very similar to lots of other things. And so there are a number of viruses and even a number of congenital conditions like rheumatoid arthritis, for example, that have very similar symptoms. And so people can have something that symptomatically is like Lyme, but may be caused by a virus or may be caused by a congenital condition that leads to lots of confusion about what's causing Lyme because Lyme symptoms and these symptoms match up really well, even though they're not necessarily the same thing. Mm -hmm. Okay. Does everyone who has Lyme, do they start with this bullseye rash or do some people get Lyme and they never get this bullseye rash? Right. So there, there's conflicting numbers in the literature, but uh, anywhere from 
40 to 60% of people that acquire Lyme disease never have this characteristic rash. Mm -hmm. um, the rash is not actually caused by the bacteria itself. The rash is caused by your immune system responding to that. And so if your immune system doesn't cause that localized inflammation around that location where the tick bit you, then there's no bullseye rash there. Uh, and so anywhere from 40 to 60% of people that acquire the bacteria and later on become symptomatic never had a rash in the first place. Now, is that that they never had a rash in all of those cases or is it that that rash occurred in a non uh uh, an inconspicuous spot, like maybe in the scalp, for example, mm -hmm. there's probably some of that, that some people get a rash and never recognize it because it's in a place you don't look for. But there's certainly a large percentage of people who acquire Lyme who never have that characteristic rash. And without that characteristic rash, in some cases, you never even know you got bit by a tick mm -hmm. because that might be the thing you look for. A tick bites you, it feeds for 24 hours or so. And if that thing's biting me on my back, and I don't feel it there, I may never even know I got bit by a tick if mm -hmm. I don't have a rash that surrounds that particular location. Precisely. I know um, I was tested positive for Lyme, but I don't remember ever seeing a bullseye rash. And I've talked to other people who experienced something similar. And I never had thought about the fact that, you know, I could have been bitten on my scalp and obviously I wouldn't see a rash there. Um, but that makes a lot of sense. But it leads me to my next question. Can someone be bitten by a tick who is a, a host for the bacteria? And the this like lies dormant in their body and then they don't really experience any symptoms. And then later in life, they have the symptoms. So when we look at Lyme, um, Lyme a lot of Lyme symptomology, I guess, if you want to call it that, is dependent on how your body responds to it. And so people with a really strong, robust immune system tend to respond to it relatively rapidly. And so we get your kind of characteristic early Lyme symptoms where that person will develop a fever and get lethargy and get soreness and go to a doctor and yeah, I got bit by a tick and I had this rash and I have these symptoms and here, here's your antibiotics and we're going to treat you because you definitely have one. We're going to test you, but we're definitely going to treat you. If someone's immune system doesn't respond to the infection right away though, that infection can spread through the body without symptoms. Uh, and one of the biggest uh, issues that can result from that is that you wind up getting one of these, what we call later stage Limes, uh, a stage two or a stage three Lyme infection, where it kind of bypassed that initial immune response and it spreads throughout the body and then the symptoms come along later. In some cases, this could be weeks to months later um, where you start to get that, that generalized Lyme response, but it happens later in, uh, in time. Or in some cases, it could be months to years later. Uh, and in that case, it's typically that the bacteria have crossed into the central nervous system. And so in that case, those people often present with more nervous system, uh, neurological issues and neurological responses that may actually be attributed to a Lyme infection that they acquired years before that they didn't even know they had gotten because they didn't have symptoms at the time. 
And those typically are ones that are going to require a more aggressive and a longer period of treatment than, okay, you, you got bit by a tick the other day. I see this rash on you. You tested positive. Here's a one to two week course of antibiotics and you're good. Instead, it may be here's a one to two, in some cases, three month course of antibiotics to try to knock this thing out of you. Right. Yeah. I've definitely seen that with people who are like, oh yeah, I just, I got treated for Lyme and it went away and everything was fine. And then other people are like, how, how, because I've been dealing with this for a long time. So that really does answer a question that I've had for a long time. So very interesting. Um, you mentioned the symptoms. So besides this rash that people would notice, what are some symptoms that kind of tip people off? They may have Lyme disease. Um, so Obviously, getting bit by a tick is, is your giveaway. And if you develop this rash, it's a dead giveaway that, yeah, that's probably what's going on. Other times, often what happens is more flu-like symptoms, which can be really hard to tease apart. Um, you know, other than typically the time of year, you know, with flu typically being a winter thing uh, and Lyme not, there's not really a giveaway that, okay, this is Lyme as opposed to this is the flu. And even then, that's not really a giveaway. Um, but you, you, you can get fever, you get lethargy, tiredness, muscle soreness, joint pain, diarrhea, all of these things that seem like other things, mm -hmm. a cold, the flu, arthritis, Lyme mimics all of these things in its symptoms. And the symptoms aren't always the same from person to person. So oftentimes what happens is an individual that's acquired Lyme that didn't know they acquired Lyme may not actually get, may never even think to be tested for it or may not get tested for it, particularly in an area of the country where it's not prevalent. Um, and as a consequence, it can go a while before someone finally gets that diagnosis uh, and, because they got the test for it and then can be treated effectively. Okay. And so a two-part question, how do doctors typically treat people who have Lyme disease? And then once you have Lyme disease, is it always kind of in your body as a bacteria or does it eventually go away? Uh, so first part, then second part. Uh, so the, uh, the, the course of treatment for Lyme is the same as any other bacterial infection. It's an antibiotic therapy. Uh, and so the length of that antibiotic therapy is dictated by where you are in the disease cycle. If it's an early onset infection, someone takes typically about a two-week course of uh, antibiotics. Doc doxycycline is the most commonly used one because it's the most effective one. Uh, and that's about it. But if it is a later uh, progressed infection, one that got missed or one that wasn't diagnosed because it was asymptomatic for a while, then the course of those antibiotics is typically longer and the route may be different. So if I were to go out in the woods, get bit by a tick, develop a rash and go to the doctor tomorrow, the doctor would give me probably a two week course of oral doxycycline. That should kill the bacteria and wipe it out. If on the other hand, I got bit by a tick four years ago and don't know it, and I start to develop Lyme symptoms and they do a test and they find out I have Lyme, it's probably going to be an intravenous uh, antibiotic at that point. And it could be upwards of a month that I'm on antibiotic therapy to try to knock it out. Because once it gets severe 
And particularly once it crosses into the nervous system, you need to be more aggressive with the treatment in order to knock it out. So doxycycline is the main antibiotic that's used. There are a couple of others that are used as well on people that are intolerant to doxycycline. So amoxicillin, for example, which is a penicillin derivative is used. Uh, and then there's another one that the name is escaping me at the moment, but it belongs to a group of uh, sulfur, uh, antibiotics that contain sulfur in them that can also be used as well, but they're not quite as effective as doxy is. As far as long-term is concerned, um, someone that's been infected with Lyme that's had a thorough course of antibiotic therapy and that it treats it effectively, they are cured of that, uh, of Lyme disease. The problem that persists in some people is there is, in, in a decent percentage of individuals, a post-Lyme infection syndrome. Uh, and this post-Lyme infection syndrome is where the body can actually have Lyme-like symptoms, the soreness in particular, the muscle soreness, the weakness, the joint pain can persist long after the bacteria is gone. And that can pose an issue because that's no longer the bacteria making you sick. If bacteria is making me sick and I take an antibiotic and kill the bacteria, great. If the bacteria is no longer there, but I still have persistent symptoms. The, the question is one, why, and B, how do I treat that? Um, the why is still being studied. One of the things that appears to happen in a number of people is that essentially you can develop an autoimmune-like condition where your immune system fights the Lyme, attacks the Lyme, eliminates the Lyme, and then for some reason, something in your body triggers those, it triggers those same antibodies that formed against the Lyme to actually attack your own body, mm. to treat your body like a foreign pathogen, the same way it does in something like lupus or rheumatoid arthritis. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And as a result, you can get Lyme-like symptoms, that soreness, that weakness, that pain, but it's actually your own body attacking you. And so unfortunately, in those cases, what it comes down to a lot is Antibiotic therapy isn't going to help that any longer because it's not a bacteria causing it and it becomes symptomatic treatment of people in those cases. And that can become incredibly disconcerting and mind-numbing when you're being treated for symptoms that are very similar, if not identical, to what your disease symptoms were, but it's not the disease causing it anymore. It's your, body's, your body essentially causing it now. That is so unfair. <laughs> Yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> so when, when the bacteria does um, enter the nervous system, like you said, what, what happens exactly when that happens? What are the symptoms uh, and things? So typically you're, you're going to get, so if you think about your nervous system, your nervous system is involved in two major things. You get sensory components where it's your perception of your body, but you also get motor components where it's controlling your body. And so you can get pain and soreness because your sensory neurons are basically being attacked and firing when they're not supposed to, but you can also get muscle weakness uh, and motor dysfunction because your motor neurons are also being attacked and your body is, um, your body is basically not 
able to do the things it would normally do. And so we get these things that are more characteristic of uh, neuropathies or fibromyalgias or even some Parkinson's-like symptoms at times, not related to memory often, but related to muscle function. When in reality, it's not a chronic condition like Parkinson's, it's actually that the Lyme bacteria is affecting the nervous system in that case. Okay. So Lyme can actually, base, I mean, it can lead to an autoimmune disease. Mm-hmm. Can it lead to other types of diseases, like obviously gut health issues, cancer? Um, so great question. There has been no evidence that Lyme can be linked to causing cancers. Um, However, uh, um, the treatment, and and I don't want to dissuade people from treatments, but any antibiotic has the potential to cause issues with uh, gut health. Um, You know, this is unfortunately one of the issues that has resulted from many years of overprescription of antibiotics. You know, I imagine it was similar to when you were when you were young to when I was young that if you went to the pediatrician as a kid and you had a sniffle or a cold, it was, yeah, here's some antibiotics. Mm-hmm. And you took them. They don't do that anymore, thankfully. Um, but why they don't do that anymore is, A, we've selected for antibiotic-resistant bacteria in the process because we've been treating them when we didn't need to. And B, antibiotics are meant to kill bacteria. Mm-hmm. They are meant to kill bacteria that are making you sick, but they can also in many cases kill bacteria that aren't making you sick, the healthy bacteria in your gut, in your digestive tract. And so an extended course of antibiotics, a three, a four, or in the case of a persistent Lyme infection, a multi-month course of antibiotics can really wipe out your your digestive bacteria. That can lead to all sorts of digestive health issues, It can also lead to immune issues because a lot of research in recent years has shown that the gut is really closely tied to the immune system. And so if the immune, if the gut bacteria get too far out of whack and don't get back into line, it can lead to immune issues as well. So on the cancer side of things, I would say no, no, there's, there's no real evidence that, you know, Lyme is linked to cancers, but there is certainly a potential issue that any long-term therapy and long-term treatment can lead to intestinal gut uh, bacteria issues, can lead to intestinal health issues, and that that can have immune consequences. I see. And you may or may not want to answer this question, but so we do hear a lot about people using doxycycline. I know that's the standard treatment. Um, What are your thoughts about alternative treatments to treating for treating Lyme disease? We know that Lyme is caused by a bacteria. Mm. The, there are two ways you eliminate a bacteria from your body. One, your immune system does it naturally. Um, or an antibiotic is needed in order to do that. You need to kill the bacteria. Now, yes, th- there are other potential ways to kill bacteria, but they're also potentially harmful to the individual that's taking them. So, There are some people that can get infected by Lyme bacteria and never know it and their body wipes it out for them. Their immune system is just strong enough and robust and it does that. Uh, But if that doesn't happen and you develop symptoms of Lyme, 
your best course of action is going to be to take an antibiotic. Now, if you are insensitive to doxycycline for some reason, like I mentioned before, there are a couple of other antibiotics that can be used to treat it. Amoxicillin is one of them, which is in the penicillin family. There's another sulfur, uh, including antibiotic that works as well. But anytime you've got a robust bacterial infection, your best bet is going to be to uh, have an antibiotic treatment. Other treatments that you might use have the potential to either be ineffective. They, I'm not going to say they couldn't work. There's always a possibility, but they have potential to either A, be ineffective, or B, have side effects that are detrimental to you in the process. And there are protocols to help you rebuild gut, um, your healthy gut flora. So Absolutely. And also, you know, someone that's taking a two-week course of doxycycline is probably not going to have severe intestinal bacterial issues. Um, they could have some intestinal discomfort for a while. They could have some potential gut biota issues, but those will tend to resolve themselves naturally in short order people that are in more long-term antibiotic therapy, there are protocols that are out there and available that are able to restore the gut biota back to what it was prior to that to avoid potential dangerous things like uh, C. diff infections and other nasty things that can happen in the digestive tract. There are all sorts of gut restoration, quote unquote, uh, protocols that are out there, yes. Gotcha. Okay. And you're a, you're a professor. So I'm going to stand on the, um, the theory that there's no dumb questions and ask what may potentially be a dumb question. But so is uh, an IV antibiotic less likely to cause harm to the gut than oral antibiotics? It's not a dumb question at all. And your first thought is probably getting an oral antibiotic has to get into the body somewhere. It's going to happen in the intestines, and so that's going to be detrimental to the gut, back, gut bacteria, whereas something going into my blood probably wouldn't be. Um, but as it turns out, that actually generally isn't the case. The, um, while, yes, oral antibiotics can have impacts on your gut bacteria, so can IV antibiotics. And oftentimes, IV antibiotics are often given at a higher dose than oral antibiotics are because they're given in cases where people are in more severe need. There, there, there is a more robust infection. And so you're actually getting higher doses often with IV antibiotics and you're getting more consistent and persistent treatment. And so the, the blood vessels that go into the digestive tract are the same as the blood vessels that go anywhere else in the body. And if they're carrying antibiotics into the wall of the digestive tract, they can just as easily affect the gut bacteria as an oral antibiotic can. Okay. Well, that's a good answer to my potentially dumb question. <laughs> Thank Not you. dumb at all. I promise. Yeah. Okay. Um, some questions from uh, listeners. Uh, why does Rocky Mountain show up if you have Lyme disease? That's a really interesting question. Uh, and in particular, because they are transmitted by multiple different types of ticks. Like I said before, the, the black-legged tick is the tick that transmits uh, the bacteria that causes Lyme, whereas Rocky Mountain is transmitted by dog ticks. However, with that being said, if you are in an area where there are a lot of ticks, presumably there are a lot of different types of ticks mm. in those areas. 
experience. Now, that isn't always the case. There are areas where you only get dog ticks. You only get black-legged ticks. And so if you're in an area where you are prone to being exposed to ticks, you are prone to being exposed to bites from multiple different species of ticks. And so an individual may, just as easily as they could get one bite and not notice it, mm-hmm. may get multiple bites without noticing it. And if I have one tick-borne pathogen, so let's say I have Lyme, if my immune system is trying to battle that, it makes it increasingly likely that if I were to be exposed to another one, I can become infected to it and I can Mm. become susceptible to it. And so we often see co-infections of different types of tick-borne pathogens. Some of them are ones that are transmitted by different ticks, like Lyme and Rocky Mountain. Some of them are ones that are transmitted by the same type of tick. So we can commonly see, for example, uh, Ehrlichia infections and Lyme infections in the same individual because the same type of tick can transmit both and one bite might give you more than one infection and you might be susceptible to multiple things. The black-legged tick in particular can transmit like four or five different tick-borne pathogens. So if you've got a tick that's carrying multiple tick-borne diseases, you can get multiple tick-borne diseases simultaneously. Wow. Okay. That's, that's not fun. No, no, not at all. Oh goodness. Okay. So another listener asks, why are doctors so hesitant to test people for tick-borne illnesses? I can't speak for individuals, obviously. (laughs) Um, I think there's a twofold answer to that. I think the first side of it is if you're in an area where tick-borne diseases are less prevalent, So if you're outside of one of those geographic areas where we get a lot of Lyme, for example, doctors are trained, and rightfully so, to look for the simplest answer. What makes the most sense? If someone comes presenting to me with lethargy and muscle weakness and pain and fever in Florida, for example, I'm going to be looking for the flu or I'm going to be looking for some other sort of differential diagnosis that makes sense in Florida. And Lyme isn't my first thing that I would jump to. Mm -hmm. Somewhere down the line, that should become the thing that they look to if they don't find another answer though. And I think that's where you get into an issue of the difference between someone that is looking for the most logical answer versus someone that becomes resistant to looking for Mm -hmm an answer that is potentially logical. And so if the logical answers aren't there, it doesn't hurt at some point to run a blood test to test for the presence of Lyme. Um, So I think that in one case, it's if it's not here a lot, then that's not the thing I'm going to look for. I'm going to look for things that are here a lot. Somewhere down the line, though, if my differential diagnoses are going out the window, that should be something I look for. Mm -hmm. I think the other side of it is in some areas of the country, I think people have chronic illnesses and these chronic illnesses are causing them great discomfort and great deal of symptoms and great pain. And some doctors see people coming in saying, well, maybe it's Lyme, test me for Lyme. Uh, Because Lyme makes sense symptom wise, but it doesn't necessarily make sense geographically or for whatever reason. And so I think over time what can happen is 
when people are asking about something and looking for something and a doctor's going, I know it's not this because I know it's this, or I know it's not this for this reason, rather than explaining the why, I think they just become really resistant and hesitant after a while and they become dismissive. Dismissive isn't good. Um, they may have a good reason why they are dismissing Lyme, but if they're not effectively articulating that and explaining that, then it comes off to a patient as being dismissed. And that's not a good thing. You don't, you don't dismiss people when they have concerns. You either test it or you address their concerns properly. And I think there comes a, I'm tired of these types of questions, so I just blow it off. And that's not good. That's not helpful at all. Okay. I can understand why it gets to that point, but it's not good that that happens. Mm -hmm. Okay. Another very specific question, and I'm not even sure I can pronounce these words. Um, if they treat spiro, spirochetes? spirochetes, spirochetes with penicillin, when you have syphilis, why isn't penicillin an option for Lyme spirochetes? Actually a really good question. Um, so, a, spirochete, a, a spirochete is a particular type of bacteria. All spirochetes belong to the same group of bacteria that have this spiral shape, like I mentioned before. And I mentioned before that syphilis is one of those. Uh, syphilis belongs to a group of, back of spirochetes called the treponemas. Uh, and these are actually a really weird group of bacteria that have really odd metabolisms. Um, and because of that metabolism, um, metabolic nature that they have, they're actually really susceptible to penicillins. As it turns out, even though Lyme have a similar shape in that they are spirochetes and they have this spiral shape, they are actually pretty resistant to penicillin. Um, now, I mentioned before one of the antibiotics that can be used to treat, um, to treat Lyme is amoxicillin. Amoxicillin is kind of a second-generation penicillin derivative. It's not penicillin, but it's a synthetic derivative of it. Amoxicillin does work against Lyme. It doesn't work as effectively as doxycycline. It can take a longer to treat it. It may take multiple rounds to treat it. So we have this uh, antibiotic doxycycline that works really, really well, which is actually kind of a second-generation of uh, tetracycline which is a very common broad-spectrum antibiotic. Uh, tetracycline doesn't do a very good job against Lyme disease either, even though doxycycline is similar to it. So certain bacteria are more susceptible to certain antibiotics than others. Some are downright resistant to, um, to certain antibiotics. If, if you, and I don't want to get too far off topic on this, but to give an example of this that people are probably familiar with, uh, staph infections. Staph infections are susceptible to lots of different types of antibiotics, but a certain group of staph infections called multiple drug resistant staph aureus or MRSA infections are resistant to all sorts of antibiotics, nearly all antibiotics they're resistant to. In that case, we're dealing with the same species of bacteria and we have to use different drugs to treat different strains. In the case of syphilis and Lyme, they belong to this really broad group of bacteria that they're both in, but they're both very different bacteria within that group. And so they need different treatments. Okay. Wow. Good, good answer. I hope that answers her question. Um, another question uh, kind of on the same line about doxycycline. 
While on doxycycline, can one do a liver cleanse, blood cleanse, and parasite cleanse? If not all three at the same time, can any one of them be done individually while on doxy? I know you're not a doctor. Do you want to answer this question? Uh, The only answer I can really give to that question, again, because I am not a doctor, is that their best bet would be to speak to a medical professional, talk specifically about what they want to do, and see whether or not that would impact the efficacy of the particular medication. There's all sorts of potential drug interactions that can occur, and even interactions between a a drug and a non-drug that a person might take to do some sort of a cleanse. And so I definitely recommend talking to a medical professional about that. Mm -hmm. I had a couple of different people ask me if, because the husband and wife both were um, tested positive for Lyme, and they were asking if it's possible that Lyme can be transmitted sexually or maybe saliva, uh, where there's uh, instances in this one uh, small town where uh, one of my readers sent in some questions, uh, lots of families where everyone in the family tested positive for Lyme. Is that just kind of a coincidence? They live in an area where it's prevalent or? So I, and I honestly, yes, uh, I, I don't want to call it a coincidence because I don't want to be, I don't want to make it sound like I'm being dismissive and I'm not at mm-hmm. all. Um, what is likely occurring in that case is when you get an area where Lyme is probably a lot more abundant than people even know and ticks are readily present in the area and there's probably a very high incidence in that tick population of Lyme, you get a lot of people be, uh, being bit. You get families that go out and recreate together and go to common areas or work in the same industry or field. Farmers, for example, are out in fields all the time and typically farming is a family venture. And when it is, everyone in that family is going to be in the same environment, exposed to the same sort of environmental things and all have the possibility of being bit by ticks that uh, are infected by, uh, that are carrying the pathogen and can spread it. Uh, There is no evidence and a number of uh, experiments and studies have looked at this. There's no evidence of sexual transmission of Lyme bacteria, there's no evidence of salivary transmission, and there's no evidence of mothers being able to transmit it to their children uh, intrauterine either, uh, or through breast milk. So it is likely, I don't wanna call it a coincidence, it is likely that they are all in the same environment, they are all exposed to the same types of things, and that there's probably a particularly high incidence of the bacteria in the tick population there. There are some parts of the country where the rodent and tick populations can have 70 to 90% of them being in, carrying the bacteria. Where unfortunately, if you get bit by a tick and you don't know it, there's an incredibly high chance that you're going to get infected. And so you get an incredibly high incidence of it in those areas. And particularly in families where people are interacting together and hanging out together and doing the same type of work together and the same type of play together, they're all equally exposed to those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And um, how small are these ticks anyways? I mean, I know when they're in their first phase of life or whatever, they, they're really small. Yes. So the first phase of life, which is not going to be able to transmit a disease to a human, mm-hmm. uh, but where they can acquire it, you're looking at something that is the size of a pinhead. Um, as you get into the second stage of life, Nymph ticks are really, really small. 
So uh, Marble and NymTix are both really small. You may be looking at something that goes completely unnoticed. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, a couple of millimeters, you know, to a centimeter across in some cases in these things that you could very easily have it on your body, get bit by it, and never even notice it. When we think of ticks, we think of adult ticks, which are still tiny, mm -hmm. but are noticeable. Mm -hmm. they, they have a characteristic shape. They have a characteristic appearance. Uh, and you can notice them pretty easily. A larval or a nymph tick might look like a tiny freckle if it mm -hmm. isn't moving and crawling at the particular time. And so it's very easy for someone to get bit, acquire a bacterial infection, and never even know they got bit, especially if they don't develop that characteristic bullseye rash that we talked about earlier. And ticks live in, are they nests or what do they call it? So um, they live in, they, they do have kind of nests where you can get large numbers of eggs that hatch out but they will congregate to similar areas. And so in grasslands, for example, and people don't typically think of Lyme in grasslands, but Lyme occurs in grasslands and occurs pretty frequently in grasslands. Um, they'll just climb up the grasses and hang out there with their little you know, arms and legs hanging out and something walks by and brushes against it and you can just wind up with dozens of ticks on you and not even notice that these little tiny things are there. In forests, they're on the branches, they're on the leaves, they're on the plants. Uh, so they're all over the place and they tend to be in common areas because what they're doing is they're looking for something to attach to to eat. Mm -hmm. And they're all going to the same places to look for things to attach to to eat. Right. And I hate to make that association, but I'm thinking when this question came up, you know, with multiple people in the family, I'm thinking, you know, people that are going hiking, people that are going to the park, people that are going forest bathing. I mean, there's all these ticks and they tend to not just be one tick here, you know, getting on one person. Right. So. There's a, you know, among people that do tick research and you go out in the field and you, you look for these things and, and we do often what's called a tick drag where you take basically a big white sheet, you stretch it across this field and you walk through it. Some of these tick drags in the course of walking, you know, the length of a football field, in a field, you can pick up over a thousand ticks in that short of a distance, just to give you an idea of how dense these can be in some area. And if you're in an area where there's lots of disease, 70% of those thousand ticks might be carrying disease. So what can people do? Be, uh, be diligent. I mean, the best thing, the best way to Deal with this is to avoid it, of course. And that doesn't mean you should not go outside. You should not, you know, go and recreate and enjoy outdoors because that's that's not realistic. Um, but tick repellents, um, uh, be they something you use naturally or be they something that is a commercial specific tick repellent, I encourage you to use those. Wearing, and as uncomfortable as it may sound, wearing long sleeves when you're in an area where there's ticks is one of the best things you can do to keep from getting a tick on your skin because it'll get on your clothing and not on your skin. Wearing boots. Uh, when I go out and do research in the field, I wear barn boots out. I wear rubber knee-high boots out all the time because if a tick gets on one of those boots, it falls right off and it never gets on my skin. I tuck my pants into my boots. That way there's multiple fabric layers between my skin and the outside environment to minimize the likelihood of getting a tick on me. 
and I check myself really, really well as soon as I get home every time. I mean, there are periods of time where I will be going out to do field research five days a week for eight weeks straight. And every time I am done in the field, the first thing I do is go home, take my clothes off. They go in the washing machine on an ultra hot cycle. And I go in the bathroom and check myself and take a shower right away. Because even with all those precautions, I know there's a chance that I'm going to be pulling ticks off of myself. Mm-hmm. And I'd rather get them off quickly before they have a chance to bite me and infect me. It takes a while for Lyme to transmit. Uh, the tick has to be latched on for about 24 hours to be able to transmit the bacterial infection. And so if you are diligent and you find them and you remove them, it greatly reduces the likelihood that you're going to get sick. Awesome. Okay. That's really good advice. Is there any type of just any kind of soap that is better than others for, you know, showering to make sure not in particular. I, I would say, you know, the best bet is to do a really good job of scrubbing down and checking yourself really, really well. Uh, it's more about visual inspection okay. than it is about what you're using to clean yourself. If you've got young children, check them because kids are notoriously bad at hygiene. I mean, I've got mm-hmm. four kids. They are terrible when it comes to their hygiene. Yeah. So if I take my son out into the field with me to help me do field work, when we go, cause he loves to help dad. When mm-hmm. we get home, I check him well for ticks because I know he's not going to do a good job of checking himself. Right. Good so advice. Checking your kids, checking your pets and checking yourself is going to be the best way to avoid issues. Yes. Perfect. Great advice. Well, is there anything that you think we might not have covered that you'd like to add? Um, I, th- I think we did a pretty good job of covering everything. You know, I, I don't want people to fear you know, nature and to fear going outside and to fear enjoying themselves. But just like anything else, you know, taking precautions, being prepared when you got there, knowing that you're going into an area where there may be a ticks. And so wearing the right clothing, checking yourselves afterwards. And if you start to feel ill afterwards, even if there's no immediate recollection of a tick bite, seeking out a doctor um, and getting tested or treated if you are infected is you know, it's good sound medicine. Uh, so taking care of yourself and advocating yourself, but also relying on medicine and working with your doctor is the best thing that you can do. And prevention, of course, is always the best medicine. Perfect. Awesome. Thank you so much, Dr. Beckman. This has been a great, very informative interview. I appreciate you so much for giving us all these answers. Thanks. It's been a lot of fun. I've enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. Please write and review so other people can learn about this podcast. Find out more about sleep, hygiene, eating healthy, tasty recipes, zero-waste lifestyle, and lots more on thatorganicmom.com. Help us spread the word. Be blessed and stay healthy.